and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and this is the second episode in our Gerrymandering Oklahoma mini-series. In our previous episode, we visited with OU political science professor Keith Gaddy to get his expert academic insight into the legislative and congressional redistricting process. Dr. Gaddy helped us define some key terms like redistricting and gerrymandering and described how these things are done. Now, since redistricting happens in every state in the country, and because early this year, the Supreme Court ruled on the subject, for this episode, Scott and I wanted to speak with someone who has been actively working to end gerrymandering in multiple states. For that, we reached out to an organization named Common Cause and were able to speak with their redistricting specialist, Dan Vicuña. Common Cause has been actively involved in the fight for fair and transparent maps in multiple states, even when that fight means they have to, you know, file lawsuits and take it all the way to the Supreme Court. So, while last week's episode, Dr. Gaddy described how the redistricting process happens, and in particular how gerrymandering happens, in this episode, Dan Vicuña describes the process of changing the process of redistricting, and gives an argument for maybe why we should. Okay, on that note, I'm going to stop talking and we'll just let you listen to the interview. We're joined now by Dan Vicuña from Common Cause. Hello, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Tell us maybe just a, a little overview of, of who you are and a little bit about Common Cause as an organization. Yeah, so um, I'll start with talking about Common Cause and sort of where I fit in. So uh, Common Cause is a uh, democracy organization, essentially. Our goal is to ensure that um, ordinary Americans have a voice in the political process. We do that through uh, a number of reforms. We have a robust voting rights effort to ensure that um, folks have access to uh, getting registered and to cast a ballot. Um, We do that through um, opposing consolidation in the media to ensure that there are diverse voices uh, that bring the news to people at uh, the local level and national level. Um, We work on campaign finance reform, um, ensuring that we can uh, are trying to reduce the influence of big money in politics. Um, And then there's uh, the area that I work in, um, which is uh, our redistricting and representation um, section, which includes both um, advocacy for a um, accurate and fair census, um, in addition to gerrymandering. I'm our national redistricting manager, trying to end gerrymandering, um, which is uh, the process of drawing legislative districts um, to uh, to favor incumbents, to favor political party, really putting the needs of politicians first um, uh, when it comes to um, you know how these voting districts are drawn and kind of ignoring the needs of the public and our communities and that's the sort of what the damage that gerrymandering does so we're in uh, you know have a long standing effort to try to end that process and we're making a lot of progress around the country sure and and so you guys have worked in a number of states uh on the the issue of gerrymandering and redistricting can you give us like a brief overview of of your involvement in in different states and what that's looked like Yes. So it really um, kind of runs the gamut. Um, you know, I think one of the, uh, the efforts that we kind of led that have become, that's become a model really for other states um, was right here in California. So I sit in our Los Angeles office uh, working for Kathy Fung, who 
uh, was really the, the driving force behind the creation of California's Citizens Redistricting Commission. Um, you know, we, the, the primary problem we see with redistricting done um, by politicians um, is that there's obviously a clear conflict of interest there. Um, they have a desire to draw districts that, again, you know, don't necessarily reflect the needs of the community and what fair representation would be for the public. Um, what they tend to focus on is ensuring their own reelection, uh, partisan advantage for whatever political party they belong to. So um, our goal in California was to take that power away from politicians, give it to a balanced, unbiased commission that is heavily screened for conflicts of interest to ensure that you don't have people with a direct interest in the process um, sitting on that commission. Um, and so that took place in 2008 and 2010, two different ballot initiatives um, that empowered the commission to draw districts for uh, both state legislative uh, boundaries and for U.S. House of Representatives from Congress. Um, and it, uh, so that's, uh, you know, and that succeeded. It was an incredibly um, uh, amazing democratic exercise um, when, when the commission actually came together. Uh, we then played a role in implementation, ensuring that the commissioners came from really every walk of life, um, and that really reflected the diversity of California. Um, so anyway, so that's one example. Um, we've also been very active in, um, in, in a place like Ohio, where you know, maybe get going for the kind of that gold standard citizens registering commission was a little tougher politically. So we found a way through um, Catherine Turser, our executive director there, to to pass some reforms that uh, you know ensured that there that both parties, uh, major parties, sort of balanced out each other, such that one couldn't uh, run the table and dominate the drawing of districts. Um, we supported efforts in Florida, which uh, to create uh, a couple of uh, constitutional amendments that um, added explicit language to the state constitution prohibiting the drawing of districts to benefit a party or candidate. Um, and then when elected officials just ignored that law, we were able to, to use it as a weapon to sue them and get a new congressional and state senate map um, in the state. So, um, yeah, so our efforts are really sort of far-reaching in terms of legislative lobbying, supporting ballot initiatives. Um, and, uh, you know, we, in 2018 alone, we saw five states um, past redistricting reform. As far as we can tell, that's unprecedented in American history to, to see that kind of momentum in one year on this issue. So, um, you know, we we hope and I believe that it will continue. Hey, Dan, this is Scott. Um, that's that all is, is really exciting um, and and good to hear. You know, I think gerrymandering is one of those things that people are starting to learn about and understand why it can be so um, counterproductive to democracy on both the left or the right. Um, in terms of independent like citizen redistricting commissions specifically you know i know several states have passed have passed these my understanding is that there have been in some cases um legal challenges to these because um constitutionally the power to draw legislative districts is given to state legislatures and my understanding is that justice roberts in particular has shown some like he, do he doesn't like this very much so my question is are these kind of reforms, do you think that these are safe from legal challenge moving forward, looking at the current makeup of the Supreme Court and and what the ideologies are there? Yeah, so the, the most recent challenge to the constitutionality of independent commissions came in um, 2015. There was a decision um, in a case called Arizona 
state legislature via Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. And um, Arizona legislators, understandably, uh, upset that the people, you know, sort of took that power to manipulate districts away from them and gave it to uh, what is in Arizona a five-person commission, two Democrats, two Republicans, and one independent. And the, the argument that the Arizona legislature made uh, was that, um, as you mentioned, the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution states, uh, you know, that state legislatures uh, you know, are, um, you know, are empowered to determine the time, place, and manner of elections. And therefore, um, you should, they, that should be construed very narrowly to say that, um, you know, the people going over the heads of legislators to create a citizens commission um, is unconstitutional. Uh, it shouldn't be allowed. Um, in a 5-4 decision um, authored by Justice Ginsburg, um, you know, she made the case that uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense understanding that ultimate sovereignty, ultimate power in a democracy lies with the people. It doesn't make sense to have such a narrow um, vision for, um, you know, what constitutes sort of the lawmaking authority of a state and that therefore um, independent commissions created by the public were, were absolutely constitutional. Um, so that preserved Arizona's, California's, um, some other states that, that may have been vulnerable to challenge. Um, you know, the, uh, the question is now, as you mentioned, what, what happens now that you've got a, a, you know, a new Supreme Court majority? Justice Ginsburg was joined by um, the other sort of perceived liberals on the court and uh, Justice Kennedy, who's no longer on the court. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the powers that be, uh, including some partisan politicians, decide to take this new Supreme Court majority out for a spin and try to challenge commissions again, understanding that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, um, wrote the dissent in that case, stating that you know, his belief that these commissions were in fact unconstitutional. Um, you know, I think we'll have to see whether he uh, respects precedent, uh, whether he you know, sort of abides by his own words in Rousseau v. Common Cause, uh, you know, sort of a disappointing case in which we were one of the plaintiffs. Um, you know, this is a case where we were challenging the constitutionality of partisan gerrymandering, and a couple of months ago, the Supreme Court, uh, in a decision authored, authored by Justice Roberts, said, um, you know, that this was just not a question that federal courts could look at. They, they said that it was a non-justiciable political question. You know, but in his decision, the Chief Justice said, um, look, there's not, you know, federal courts don't have to get involved. There's a state court option. There are, and then he mentioned these state reforms. There are independent citizen commissions being created by the state. So um, it would be a, a fairly disturbing turn of events if the Chief Justice said, we're not going to police partisan gerrymandering because the states are so active in creating reforms. And then he turned around and struck down the very reforms uh, he, he was citing. So, um, you know, we hope there is a... Uh, understanding there that uh, how bad that would look for the court's credibility. It, it is always funny to me that we hear the term activist judges so often referring to um, liberal decisions, but no matter what the decision is, there's always a chance, right, that the, the courts can be active on one side or the other. Uh, and this sure, one, yeah. I think, is is particularly interesting because of, of what you just said, that um, that you've got the chief justice that has has openly, you know, ruled one way, and then there's questions that he might rule the other way. And I'm, you know, I'm no, I'm no Supreme Court scholar, but I know that typically the issue of precedent uh, weighs very heavily over them. However, 
it's a brave new world out there, and so we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. And you know, and I should mention too that you know, like I said, the other um, you know avenue for uh, turning back gerrymanders that the chief justice mentioned was uh, was state court, and you know that currently, in fact, today. Um, a case concluded in North Carolina in which we're the plaintiff common cause v. Lewis in which we are you know sort of taking the chief justice up on his offer to to look at you know what kind of protection state constitutions have against partisan gerrymandering um, so you know we're challenging um, state legislative districts and state court based on um, North Carolina provisions of the of their state constitution that are pretty similar to equal protection and First Amendment sort of free speech clauses so um, you know we're hopeful that that will be uh, kind of a good testing ground. So hearing you talk about things that different states have done, I mean, it, it sounds like the these IRCs, the independent redistricting commissions, do you see those as kind of the best ultimate remedy to partisan gerrymandering? Are there multiple avenues that you feel like are equally successful? Like what is, what's kind of the, the I don't know, the, the, so the gold standard? Yeah, what's the gold standard way to, yeah. to make this go away? I mean, we tend to look at the independent commissions as the best possible approach. Um, you know, the reason being they are, uh, they almost always have transparency requirements, you know, in, in that commissioners are required to go around the state and hold, and only get input on registering in public forums. They are, they have partisan balance, uh, you know, equal numbers of people from the two major parties. So. Uh, you really you know, kind of neutralize partisanship as a, you know, a, a, the reason for you know drawing a particular set of maps, um, and the conflict of interest provisions that I mentioned, where you you ensure you, know, you have a long list of people that you know re, current and recent elected officials, current and recent candidates, lobbyists, donors, just a whole a whole set of people that you know, will have a personal stake in the outcome of, of how districts are drawn and keeping them off the commission. So, I mean, ideally, we think that's really the way to go. Um, you know, there are states, unfortunately, where, you know, there's not a ballot initiative option. This is obviously um, most effectively implemented by ballot initiative because politicians hold on to that power, you know, with the death grip. Um, but, you know, in places where that's not as realistic, we, you know, we absolutely kind of support other approaches, you know, where you try to uh, neutralize partisanship in other ways, right? Give the minority party a certain um, kind of veto power, you know, require supermajority vote in the legislature. Um, you know, that uh, approach, like I mentioned, Florida, where you just you make it simply a, a ban on partisan gerrymandering that can be weaponized in court later on. So, so there are other approaches for, uh, for sure, and, you know, in place, especially viable in places where a full-on commission is not really uh, possible. Sure. Well, and just uh, one state I know that is working on it right now, and I believe you guys have been involved, is Virginia, which does have – they kind of have a a ballot initiative process, but it is very different from what we are used to in Oklahoma. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like for them? Well, I think it – you know, what I, my understanding is that it tends to have to start with legislators, and what they'll do is then get that ratified by the public – um, you know, it's it's an interesting example of um, a place where kind of the uncertainty of partisan control makes it makes reform possible. Uh, you know, si simply because I think people are sort of taking out some insurance policies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the one party controls one house of the legislature, another party controls the other, and um, you know, with uh, legislative elections, I think later this year. 
um, it's a, one of those houses may flip. So I think you see both parties sort of thinking, well, the last thing we want is for the elections to not go our way. It's uncertain, and for the other party to have the opportunity to just run the table against us. Um, so maybe we can find some, you know, some compromise. And you know, they've, I think, what they may have come up with is sort of a hybrid model of, of elected and some citizens, but certainly kind of more than, uh, or uh, an improvement over a single party partisan control of the process. So. Um, you know, that's what we're looking at, too, in places where, you know, control of legislature may be uncertain, that hopefully we can get uh, both parties to think, uh, you know, that maybe a fair process that's nonpartisan uh, is the best way to go. Right, yeah. Well, and I, uh, a while back I talked to Brian Cannon at, at One Virginia, who mm-hmm. kind of walked me through some of that. And for our, our listeners here in Oklahoma, may be familiar with the Oklahoma process where it just seems like state questions appear, which is not, not how it happens, but constantly it is very different in, Oklahoma, in Virginia where they have to pass it through their state assembly twice in two, two different uh, uh, assembly gatherings, whatever they call it, sessions. Uh, and then it goes to, to a vote of the people to be ratified. And when I found that out, I wept for him a little bit because that, yeah. as hard as it is to get it on the ballot here, um, that seems like just an extra level. And I think if I remember from their proposal, um, it is one where you know it's a semi-independent commission that passes the maps initially, and then those maps have to be ratified by the, by the assembly. And I think that's the way in a number of states. And so it strikes me that there's not... There doesn't seem to be like one gold standard plan for for what a independent commission looks like. Yeah, I think that's right, and you know, kind of the notion of laboratories of democracy is 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 appropriate in this case, right? To see what's really the best fit uh, for a particular state. But I mean, it, it is hard. You know, we this came up in oral arguments in Russia v. Common Cause, where the again, sort of the chief justice said, well, and, and a couple of the other conservative skeptical justices were asking about, uh, you know, things are moving in the states, it's fine, why do we need to get involved here? And then the fact is, uh, you know, you've got fewer than half the states in the country that have a ballot initiative option. Um, so it's just it's incredibly difficult. You know, most mostly east of the Mississippi, you don't you don't see that as available. Um, so you know, we were, that's why we sort of urged the court to act because there was really no other way to enforce basic constitutional uh, protections than for courts to get involved. But um, you know, uh, they they saw things differently. So now we you know we go to the ballot where we can, um, shame legislators where we have to, and. Um, you know, and sue in state court where, where that's an option too. So just keep at it. Dan, I want to ask you a little bit about how, practically speaking, independent commissions work in the places where they've been passed. And the reason I'm, I'm asking this is because as I've learned more about this, you know, I think that sometimes the public, you know, writ large, has this supposition that, you know, why is it so complicated? Like, look at a state like Oklahoma or look at a state like, you know, Missouri that's roughly a square. You just divide it up into equal squares and those should be the districts. And they look nice and it seems like it makes, you know, quote unquote, like common sense. But the reality is when you th- you think about things like communities of interest, you think like compactness, you think about um, adhering to the Voting Rights Act, you think about the fact that population is not distributed, you know, evenly distributed across the topography of the state, drawing districts that are adherent to all of those um, adherent to all of those standards that are also 
representative, especially when you consider how sorted we are as a society now as compared to what we were even 15, 20 years ago, like drawing districts seems like it could get fairly complicated. So do these do these independent commissions, are they experts? Do they consult with experts? What typically happens to get the districts done? Yeah, I mean, they're not necessarily, they, they, they come in with, I think, a certain expertise that's more related to the ability to be, you know, they're a past of being civically engaged, of, you know, ability to run a meeting, to listen, um, to kind of, to take in a lot of input and then make decisions, you know, that to kind of come to the best conclusion possible based on that input. Um, they get important kind of tr- legal training on, um, you know, sort of the technology being used to draw districts to get, uh, you know, the legal framework, you know, requirements of the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, I know in, in the case of at least one commission, uh, what they did was, you know, so they went around the state in California here, they, there was at least um, 100 different public meetings. Uh, maybe not all of them had all 14 commissioners, but some configuration of the commissioners um, to really hear people's stories about what their communities are. Um, you know, there are some organizations and some, so some individuals who are committed to redistricting reform based from sort of a, you know, kind of a partisan fairness perspective, right, that their primary concern is really about ensuring that one political party doesn't have advantage over the other. I would say Common Cause comes at it from a slightly different perspective in that our concern is about giving the people a voice, right, giving, ensuring that they can go to decision makers who are actually interested in hearing their input about what their communities are and then uh, having those decision makers make the best possible choices they can about uh, you know which community should be kept, kept together for purposes of effective representation and and so you know what you see is these uh, these commissioners going around the state and getting that input and you can never obviously make every community happy but i think in the situation where you have an independent commission that that excludes political insiders um, people are given a, a the feeling, you know, correctly so that they have really been listened to. Um, and, you know, on a technical level, I know that the, the commissioners sometimes start with Voting Rights Act districts. Um, you know, you can't simply go and, you know, we make just a bunch of sort of compact squares, rectangles, or whatever the case may be, um, because you do have to start with, um, with Voting Rights Act districts to ensure that uh, people of color have an opportunity to elect candidates of their choice under uh, certain circumstances, um, so they, they, California commissioners at least decided to start from there. Um, and, and, you know, besides that, just, um, you know, generally are following a, a listed criteria, you know, about adherence to federal law, equal population, Voting Rights Act, um, keeping communities of interest together, compactness, um, you know, just a set of nonpartisan criteria that are designed to ensure that uh, districts really put uh, the people first. Beautiful. Um, Dan, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, maybe let's end on this note. And, and that question is, why, why do you do what you do? Like, why is this so important? You know, redistricting, you know, as you mentioned, I think used to be sort of a, a wonky issue that, you know, it's a core number of um, political folks um, kind of knew was important. Um, but, you know, it didn't necessarily kind of capture the popular imagination. Um, but I think you're seeing, uh, you know, a difference now where, where, where people understand that it, it gets to the heart of what democracy is at its core, which is the ability to hold elected officials accountable for their actions. I mean, if you don't 
have a voting system that allows that. I mean, I don't know to what extent you can even call it a democracy. So, you know, ensuring that districts are not manipulated such that the outcome of them is preordained, you know, you shouldn't be able to know in advance for, you know, any election, let alone for an entire decade, which is what modern technology has allowed mapmakers to do, you know, to predetermine for that entire decade what the outcome is going to be. Um, and that outcome will withstand even the largest sort of sweep of you know, voting sweeps like in 2018, where Democrats took the House of Representatives, but yet, you know, a gerrymander in North Carolina was untouched, uh, still a 10-3 split in favor of Republicans. So, um, you know, if you can't hold elected officials accountable because of the way districts are drawn, uh, it's really not a democracy. So that, you know, so giving the people a voice, giving them an opportunity um, to throw the bums out uh, when they deserve to be thrown out, um, you know, that's really at the core of why we do this. That sounds, that sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Dan, again, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again to Dan Vicuña and Common Cause for making time to visit with us. As you can see, redistricting has far-reaching implications for our democracy, and yet most voters have no idea how it happens, and many aren't even aware that it happens at all. I will admit I fell into that camp until just a few years ago, and now that I'm aware, man, wow. Like, I think this is clearly one of the areas where Oklahoma could make some real changes and really help our state government be more fair and transparent and to work better for all of us. So next week, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the issue of redistricting and gerrymandering and present a slightly different perspective on the subject. I'll be honest, I want the next guest to be a bit of a surprise, so I'm just going to leave it there and let you hang on it. And you'll have to tune in next week to find out what it's all about. As a reminder, we have three community conversations about good governance coming up in the next few days. Uh, on Saturday, September 7th, we'll be in Tulsa at the Nathan Hill Library at 1030, and then in Bartlesville at the Public Library there at 130, and then on Monday, September 9th, that evening at 7, we will be in Norman at the West Wind Unitarian Universalist Church. You can find details about all of these events on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash let's fix this okay, or on our website, let's fix this okay.org. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in this week. Please take a quick moment to rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts and maybe send a quick tweet or Facebook post about how much you like it. Our show, like everything we do at Let's Fix This, is designed to help like inform and explain some of the complicated parts of our government for Oklahomans so that we can all be more involved and like understand where we can make a difference. And our hope is um, that you get something out of that uh, from this show. And we would really love it if you would share it with your friends as well. Uh, this show is produced by Scott and me and our theme music is from the sugar-free all-stars. Let's pod this as a member of the mostly harmless media network. And I want to skip the rest of the outro because you've heard it 200 times already. Have a great week.